man in the beginning. And so does Hosea 6. Let's read these words. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. And on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I've hewn them by the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead's a city of evildoers, tracked with blood as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. That's for the reading of God's most holy word. Then if you'll turn with me in your forms and prayers books, in the pew in front of you, it's the smaller maroon book entitled Forms and Prayers. And then if you would turn to page 203, as well as 204, but we'll start on page 203. We have been studying the Heidelberg Catechism again of late, having heard the great comfort that is ours in Lord's Day 1. We've begun to study what question and answer 2 teaches. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? There are three things we need to know. How great our sin and misery are. How we are delivered from our sins and misery. And how we are to thank God for that deliverance. We're in the misery section. It's only three Lord's Days, but it is a devastating section. It does remove any hope from our own hearts to save ourselves. It pushes us only onto the grace of Jesus Christ. We're going to see how that's true in Lord's Day 3, and we're going to recite the answer together. I'll ask the question. I invite you to join with me in reciting this answer. Lord's Day 3. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his Creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. And where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. Turning the page, then question and answer eight. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. This the church does believe.
Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in many respects, this section of uh, the Catechism's teaching on our sinfulness is really satisfied in Lord's Day 2. Lord's Day 2, you'll recall when we studied that, asks the question, how do you come to know your misery? How do you know that you're in need of a Savior? How do you know that your life apart from God is without hope or help, without strength, that you are so desperately lost that only God's saving grace can deliver you from this? How do you come to know this? And the answer comes, the law of God tells me. And you'll remember that the law of God then is given to us in that summary of the law from Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself. So how do you come to know that you're a sinner? Well, when I compare myself with what God demands, when I line up with His teaching, with His demand of me as His creature, then I discover I'm out of sorts, that I am not the person that God has made me to be. Indeed, I must confess that I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That not only do I not line up to the demand of God in His Word, I do the very opposite. I, I desperately want to do my own thing. I want to live free from God. I want people to serve me, not for me to serve people. Really, there's nothing more that needs to be said about the need of a sinner for a Savior. Lord's Day 2 is enough to convict all who understand its teaching of their desperate need for Jesus Christ. But you see, the authors of the Catechism know something of human nature and And they know, maybe because they were parents, maybe because they were pastors, they know that sinners love to make excuses. That sinners love to explain that really in the end, their fault, their failures are not their own. Maybe it's because they'd rightly understood the Word of God. They'd read in Genesis chapter 3 the story of the fall into sin. and They had read about how man blamed his wife. It was the woman you gave me. And how man then blamed, or woman then blamed the serpent. The serpent gave to me and I ate. Not our fault, God. Not our fault. And that's true to this very day. That is the, the lesson every parent learns when they've been given children to raise in the fear of the Lord and their children are caught in a moment doing a bad thing and they, they say, but I'm not doing anything wrong. Or they blame their brother or sister or... They find some other excuse for their failure. It's in our own hearts, of course. We don't need to look at our children. We just need to look into our own hearts. We can see it in the culture around us. We can see this human nature reflected in the way so much of our culture now is busy blaming everyone and everything else for their problems. It's always somebody else's oppression. It's always somebody else's failure. It's always somebody else's mistreatment of me. The reason I'm an alcoholic is because my parents were so mean to me. It's the reason my marriage broke up is because my wife was so failed so miserably. There's no end to the excuses. There's no end to the explanations for why my sin is not my fault. And as long as we persist in that mentality, as long as we insist on blaming others for our mistakes, as long as we fail to say, no, Lord, it's me, we will never truly rest on the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
So the authors of the catechism say, you know what? We need to deal with some of these excuses. We need to deal with some of these explanations. We need to deal with some of these ideas. And they do so in Lord's Days 3 and 4. In both of these Lord's Days, the question of can we find a way out of the responsibility for sin? Can we escape the judgment of God on our own? Can we find some legal argument, some explanation, some maybe we can blame even God for why it is that we're this way? Can we get out of the problem of our sin so that we don't have to bear the responsibility of it, so that we don't have to bear the burden of it? And that's what we see here in Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, Lord's Day that starts where the Scripture starts, with the confession of man's creation in God's image. Did God make man so wicked and perverse? Maybe, maybe sin isn't my fault. You've heard that before, haven't you? I'm just born this way. And God doesn't make mistakes. And that's true. God doesn't. God created man good and in his own image that is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. We read in Genesis 1, God saying, let us make man in our own image and in the image of God he made them male and female, he created them. And that image that God gave to man, it wasn't, first of all, even primarily an external reality. It's not the way we look. God, after all, is spirit. He has no form. But rather, the image of God that we were created with is that spirituality, that reflection of a Godward orientation, that characterization of his creature with words like righteousness, holiness, and a knowledge of God. Indeed, if we go into the New Testament, we discover in Ephesians 4 verse 24, in Colossians 3 verse 10, that these are the ways in which we are being recreated, redeemed by the Savior of our lives, Jesus Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is, What Jesus is restoring in us is what God originally created in us. An orientation toward God such that we love to obey Him, love to worship Him, and love to know Him. And because of that, because that was our human nature, our identity, every aspect of our thinking, emotions, affections, desires, was oriented toward God, loving Him, living in joyous fellowship with Him. Because we were made in God's image, we were made for a relationship with Him. But but more than that, there was nothing neutral. There was nothing neutral about our condition. At the opening of time, we were decidedly for the Lord. Every cell in our body loved to serve God. That's where this catechism begins. That's where this teaching on our fallen nature begins. It begins by reminding us from where we've come. It begins by saying, don't forget how God made you. And there's much that we can say about this simple theological teaching about the image of God in man. There is in this teaching, by the way, an inherent dignity for all men that is worth reflecting about. 
All men, whatever their abilities, whatever their skills, whatever their successes or failures, whatever their circumstance in life, deserve our respect, deserve our ministry, for they are reflections of our Creator. They are those who are reminders of us of who God is. And so we can talk to a great deal. Uh, we can talk a great deal, rather, about how the image of God alters the way that we relate to each other. How when we're at school, we don't tease. How when we're at home, we don't gossip. How the image of God demands of us a love for all men. We can talk about how this gives humanity a priority within creation. This is especially true in the context of our evolutionary world where evolution makes us, more, or makes us essentially just a mammal. We're just another mammal, just another animal, says our world. And the Word of God says, no, you are a beloved child of God, a son and a daughter made in His image. You are the pinnacle of creation. You are the one that God has made to walk and talk with. We are not just another mammal. We can talk to a great extent about how this image of God alters our view of biology, society, of our world around us. We can also talk about how this explains the innate religiousness of all men everywhere and serves as a point of contact in all of our evangelistic endeavors. Everyone knows that God is. You just have to know that you are and you know that God is. Because we are image bearers of God. We see God reflected in us on some level in some way. That's why John Calvin can begin his institutes by saying that if you want to know God, you have to know man. If you want to know man, you have to know God. And it doesn't matter, says Calvin, which one you start with. You want to start with man, you're going to end up with God. You start with God, you're going to end up with man. Because we are image bearers of God and all of us are innately religious. That's why religion is found in all cultures and everywhere and every place of this world. Even the atheists can't escape it. And that's why we can, in our ministry to people, also say to them, you know this God. You know this God of whom I speak. And we can call them to repentance, even as we saw this morning. But in the context of Lord's Day 3, all of these, all of these lovely applications of this teaching of the image of God are put aside. And in this context of Lord's Day 3 and of the Heidelberg Catechism, what the authors of the Catechism want us to see is something of the holistic identity of all men made by God. Which is to say, we're not robots created by God to accomplish certain tasks, but otherwise unthinking, unfeeling, and unreal. We're not made up of parts in that sense where we might say, well... Uh, this part it feels this way and that part feels that way. No, in the beginning, every part of every aspect of our existence loved and served the Lord. Indeed, what we want to see, what we want to understand here is that when God made man, He gave man a very specific, very significant identity. An identity. That's a, that's a big word in our day. That's a big word in our culture. 
And it's an important word, one that we ought to wrestle with and one that we ought to understand from the position of Scripture. God made us a certain way that distinguishes every aspect of His being, even in man's fallen condition. We still see glimmers of this glorious reality when even in the world people do good deeds. They love each other. They serve each other. We see in that the reflection of this teaching of God's Word. We see in that the reality that all men everywhere are born with this identity. It's not simply that we do something or don't do something. It's that we are someone. We are image bearers of God. So that to understand who we are now, we need to understand who we were then. That is, who God made us to be. Indeed, isn't that so often how we fix problems in life? We go back to how things were supposed to be. The car that comes into the mechanic shop, he knows how it's supposed to be so he can see where the problem is. The patient that comes into the doctor's office, the doctor knows how your body's supposed to work. So when he sees the problem, then he also begins to understand what causes it. Well, so it is for us as we understand the problem of men, as we understand our need of a Savior, we need to start with where we began in order to understand where we've gone. And what we discover when we think about who we are is that our God is a great and glorious God who cannot be blamed for sin in any way, who created us to love and be loved, to worship Him, and to glorify Him in righteousness, holiness, and a true knowledge of God. There is no fault with God in our sin. But there is sin in our lives. The Catechism goes on to say in, Lord's, or in question answer 7, then where does man's corrupt nature come from? If we can't blame God for our sinfulness, then how do we explain it? Well, says the catechism, it comes from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. And this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. The story is so well known to us. Of course it is. It's Genesis chapter 3. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the serpent and the fruit. And our decision in that moment to turn away from God, our decision in that moment to say to God, we will not acknowledge you as our creator. We will not submit to you as our Lord. We will not glorify you with every being, uh, every part of our being. We will instead rebel against you and we will seek to kill you. We will seek to end you so that we might sit upon the throne of heaven and earth. We chose to turn away from everything good and embrace war with God to pursue death rather than life. And what we need to understand, of course, is that that is not just the very first sin that man committed in a long line of many sins. But that sin to eat of the fruit in the Garden of Eden was, in fact, the very origin of sin. That's why we read from Hosea 6 where Israel tries to impress God with her willingness to repent. And God says, you don't understand, Israel, just how deeply perverted and depraved you are. You don't realize that you can't simply choose to stop sinning because sin is so deep in you. It's the sin of Adam, says our Lord in Hosea 6, verse 7. He says the same thing in Romans 5, in the verses 12 through 21. 
teaching us that the very first act of man's rebellion against God in the garden opened, you might say, a fountain, now not of life-renewing water, but of sin, so foul that it stains all who come after it. As water flows from a fountain, so sin flows from man and woman in the beginning when they rebelled against God. They produced children who rebelled. We know that because Genesis 4 tells us about Cain killing Abel. We know that because David reminds us in Psalm 51 verse 5, in sin you have, you, I was conceived, or my mother conceived me, and I was brought forth. So that even, even the cutest and most tender child can demonstrate to us that they have inherited sin, that yes, they are most certainly born that way. Not in a good way, though, in a way of rebellion and rejection of their father. Every child born into this life are image bearers of God, created that way by their heavenly father, but they are sinful, sinning image bearers of God. Genesis 5 verse 3 when it says that God made man in his image he created Adam and then Adam brought forth a son in his own image but remember between those two things between Genesis 1 and the birth of Seth man had fallen into sin God had created a perfect son that son had become perverse and sinful he now produced sinners each one after him tainted by the sin that he had committed. Now a great deal again can be said here on this theological and theologically significant point. This explains, for example, why we don't need to teach anyone to rebel and why we may even ourselves not even notice our rebellion. Because we don't have to be taught it. It's just in us. Our temper isn't taught us. It's born in us. Our resistance to authority it's not something you need to teach a child it's in them even our lusts even our depravity even our wickedness when it comes to sexuality there are those that say we're born this way yes you were born that way but not because that's a good thing that is in fact the very deep problem of sin is you don't have to be taught to sin it is who you are And this puts paid to the lie that good education, yes, even good Christian education, can solve our problems. Or that parenting just needs to get out of the way of our naturally good kids because if you just let them be themselves, they'll want to do the right thing. That the real problem with anger and fear and self-loathing is a low self-esteem. Here's why government, prison, schools that teach and shape minds and parents that discipline believe that they can overcome the problem of sin, but they cannot. And here is why doctors and divorce lawyers and dictators exist upon this earth. Because we're born wicked and by nature hate God and our neighbor. And you can call the penal system rehabilitation. 
You can say a prison's a penitentiary, which is what we do in Canada, because we think that they can be made better. Criminals can be made better in prison, that they'll become penitential, that they will repent. That's what that means. You put them in prison so that they can repent. But none of it's true. If you want to understand the true cause of our world's brokenness, if you want to understand our own struggles, your own struggles with impatience, frustration, hurting, harming, that's where you need to start. With the eating of a fruit in a garden a long time ago. An eating of the fruit that changed the identity, we might say, in a very real way, in a very significant way, of man. Image bearer of God, full of righteousness, holiness, and the knowledge of God, and now emptied. Still an image bearer of God, for sure. But no longer full now of righteousness, holiness, and the knowledge of God, full now of rebellion and rejection and resistance. Consider consider what is common sense advice to all of us, a good bit of wisdom that I think we all understand that if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. If your sink is overflowing, turn off the tap. If you've got a spot, a, a spot a, some kind of mark on your arm, some kind of a growth, go to your doctor, get it cut, get it fixed before it becomes a problem. Prevent the problem before it gets worse. It's a good bit of advice. It's a simple bit of advice. It's effective advice. And it's impossible when it comes to sin. Impossible. Because the tap of our sin is not in our lives. It is found thousands upon thousands of years ago in a garden that no longer exists. Can you turn off that tap? The cancer that eats our souls is not one that grows from the outside in but grows from the inside out. It is in you the moment you're born. Can you cut it out? Can you cut the bad out of your soul? You don't even want to. That's the worst part. The worst part is we don't want to stop digging. We don't want to stop making mistakes. We justify our sin. We blame everyone else. Because sin has not only affected parts of our being, it has affected all of who we are. Our thoughts, our emotions, our words, our actions, our heart, our mind, our will. They're dominated by sin. In the beginning, we were image bearers of God. That was our identity. Now, because of our rebellion against God, we are shattered image bearers. We are image bearers no longer filled with the goodness of God, but with the wickedness, selfishness, and pride of sin. And that makes our condition hopeless in ourselves. Indeed, sometimes the greatest grief of sin is the fact that we don't know we're sinning. See the world around us as it's marching to its destruction, all the while singing about the glorious future in store. The Nazis did it in Germany. The Bolsheviks did it in Russia. We are doing it today. Singing the hymns of the utopian future even as the world burns around us but we don't have to go that far some of us are struggling here too we think our quick tempers just the way we are we think since everyone's doing it it's not wrong if we do we think greed is good but this is but evidence that those are to those around us 
of just how completely enslaved to sin we still are. And indeed, sometimes the great grief of sin is believing that we can overcome it by our own strength. It's the addict who says, I can quit any time. That's the picture of every one of us. It's the young girl believing that she can love her boyfriend enough that, she'll, that he'll change. It's the parent who thinks that the right rules and systems will keep their child free from the influence of this world. Or that belief that if we isolate ourselves, sometimes even literally, that we can prevent the problem of, sins from, the problem of sin from rearing its ugly head. None of which, to be sure, means that we should be careless with sin. Nothing we can do about it, so we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not the point. The point is only to show and illustrate that sin is so deep inside of you, you can do nothing to eliminate it. Because if you were to cut every aspect of sin out of your life in the hopes that you could become pure or righteous, there would be nothing left of you to bury in the grave. You cannot turn off sin's tap. And it's that hopelessness and helplessness that we so resist and reject that is such a wounding to our pride that needs to be our great confession. Because otherwise we'll miss the glorious good news of the gospel, even as it's held forth for us here in question and answer 8. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? The answer comes, yes, yes, yes. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. We're not absolutely depraved. You ought to understand there's a distinction here. Absolute depravity means that you're as bad as you can be. There is nobody in the history of the world that has ever been as bad as they could be. But everybody is totally depraved. That is, there is a part of us, or there is rather no part of us that is free from sin. There's no part of us that is untainted by sin. There's no part of us that says, I love God and my neighbor. Every part of us rebels against God. So we must confess. We must acknowledge. We must say, yes, yes. I am so totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. That's how wicked I am. That's me. That's who I am. Yes. But we must never end there. For the catechism goes on unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. It just drops that word there. It doesn't say anything else about it. it doesn't say how that's going to happen. It doesn't bring us to the cross of Calvary or the empty tomb of Easter Sunday. It doesn't bring us to the throne room of grace where the Spirit of Christ is poured out. It simply says yes. You are so utterly soaked in sin that the only hope you have is a new you, not a renovated you, not a repaired you, a new, radically new you. And it holds that hope out for us in the midst of this darkness. For the Spirit of God who was with us in the beginning, remember God breathed into the mouth of man and He became a living soul, Genesis 2. Remember that that Spirit can remake us. He who generated us can regenerate us. The God who made us can remake us. The God of heaven and earth is enough. 
It holds that hope out for us. It lays that before us. In the midst of our darkness and despair, it says, but wait, but wait, God is enough. And that's the hope that must fill our hearts with a comfort and confidence even as we worship this afternoon. Again, we can say a whole lot about even the theology of this question and answer. There's a lot that can be covered in question and answer 8. We can distinguish here between civic good and redemptive good. When it asks, are you totally unable to do any good? But wait a second. What about, what about people that you know, start soup kitchens or work in hospitals or, or, or give their lives to, to blessing others? What about Mother Teresa and the like? Surely those things are good. And we can distinguish between civic good. There is such a thing as civic good. When people drive on the right side of the road, that's a civic good. When people act kindly towards us, that's a civic good. But it is not a redemptive good. At no point does God mark it down and say, well, that's one point in their favor. Oh no, they are unable to do any good because even that good is not done for the praise of the Father, is not done in thanksgiving to our God. Even that is tainted by sin. And we ought to note that the word inclined here is a rather lovely way of describing our condition. I'm, un, I'm inclined toward all evil. That doesn't mean I'm doing all evil. That doesn't mean that I'm committing all evil. But I'm definitely leaning that way. It doesn't take much to push me that way. I'm inclined to all evil. Indeed, even the world itself understands this. Plato understood this the philosopher who was no christian he told the story about a ring the same story that ultimately gets turned into the lord of the rings by J.R. tolkien he tells a story about a ring and he uses that story to demonstrate that in the heart of every man is the inclination to evil even the best person if freed from all of the obligations and responsibilities of life would turn bad i think of that book the lord of the flies or think of the news. Think of celebrities, the wealthy, who get arrested sometimes for such cruelty and abuse towards others. You think, why? You have everything you could ever want. Why would you mistreat people that way? And, and then think that you could get away with it. So while there are restraints in this life, there are parents and schools and society the truth is, if we lifted those restraints, life wouldn't get better. We'd just end up with the purge. But accepting that is the road to understanding the power of God to save. A power so great, it boggles the mind. Remember, it boggled Nicodemus' mind. When Nicodemus asked Jesus about being born again, Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Nicodemus couldn't wrap his head around it because he hadn't come to that place of total dependence and humility. He hadn't understood just how desperately he needed Jesus. Indeed, isn't that something we've been talking about in our family visiting over this last season in Romans chapter 6? A reminder to us about the power of God to save, to transform, to renew To, do any, to speak of anything less is to diminish the great grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's to make the Easter weekend just a neat story and not the power of God unto life.
But when we embrace, when we realize, when we acknowledge, yes, I am inclined toward all evil. And so can only, like that drowning sinner, grasp hold of Christ's gracious hand. Only then do we worship at this grace and wonder at His love. When we diminish our sin, which we do naturally, when we diminish our need of Christ, then we diminish His glory and His praise, then our worship diminishes, then our work and our, our witness to the world diminishes. Because why should we glorify a God? I could have done it on my own, to be frank. I mean, it's nice that He did it, grateful that He did it, but you know, given me enough time, I would have made it. If we don't think that much of Jesus, we won't think of mu- that much of living for Jesus. So we ought to, instead of avoiding the awful and ugly truth, embrace it. Accept it. Acknowledge it. Yes, I, in every aspect of my being, need to be born again. So that I might marvel at the foot of the cross. That I might worship at the open tomb. That I might sit at my Lord's feet and praise Him for His great and glorious grace. That's why we need to acknowledge our sin. That's why we need to talk about sin and sinfulness. There's an inappropriate way to do that. Don't misunderstand me. There's an inappropriate way to just put people down or even to tell people that they need to do better, that they need to do the right thing. But there is a way to talk about sin and sinfulness that is so devastating, so like a scalpel, like a surgeon's scalpel cut so finely to expose the cancer of our lives so that we might be brought to depend upon Jesus. Because it's the easiest thing you understand to believe that we're not that bad. It's the easiest thing to believe that we can parent our children into heaven, that we can, as a church, have the right programs, get everybody saved. That we are secure because of what we do. It's the easiest thing to believe that we're not that bad. And that we can ourselves affect the change that we need in our own hearts and lives. But the truth is far more disturbing and yet far more helpful. Because the truth is, there is no hope in us. So let us turn from ourselves to the only hope we have, the glorious and great, crucified, resurrected, and ascended Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's ask Him for that grace in prayer. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we must